Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is at a Villa Park, Illinois. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Becky Klein was one of those people whose whole life made everyone else's better. Not only was she stunningly beautiful with her long brown hair and perfect smile that seemed to make her eyes smile too, she was also as wholesome as they come. She was constantly on the phone with either her mom or her sister, wanting to know everything about their days and filling them in on hers too. She actually referenced her family as the Brady Bunch, and morning, noon, and night, she was checking in on someone and making sure they knew she was thinking about them. On top of her beauty and her love for her family, Becky had a heart for helping others. She went to college for recreational therapy, and once she graduated, started working as the director of activities at a daycare called Range of Motion. While there, she actually created the cutest thing in the history of the world, which was a daycare program that combined children and the elderly. The elderly got a dozen grandchildren a day, and the children got a dozen grandparents, and that program thrived. By the year 2000, when Becky was 25, life was going great, her career was flourishing, her family was closer than ever, and she was engaged to be married. That all changed, though, when Becky met 20-year-old Nicole Abusharif at work. Nicole also worked at Range of Motion and was, in a sense, a handywoman. She did odd jobs around the facility to make sure everything was running smoothly. When Nicole and Becky met, they hit it off instantly, and in no time at all, they were inseparable. For a year or so, they were besties. However, at a work Christmas party that December, Becky and Nicole realized that what they had was a lot deeper than a friendship. Following the party, Becky left her fiancé and started dating Nicole. Now, Nicole hadn't dated women before, but no one was surprised when her and Becky started dating. She dated a few men in her past, but none of them were serious. And according to interviews with Snapped, Nicole's friends suspected that she'd only dated men because she felt like she was supposed to. And just like Nicole, Becky hadn't dated women before their relationship either. But no one batted an eye when her and Nicole started their relationship. Becky's family fully supported them, and frankly, Becky's family treated Nicole as if she were their own daughter. According to a detective, they were more of a family to Nicole than her own family. For the next six years, Becky and Nicole were completely in love. Snapped reports that neither woman had to announce their love for one another or explain it to their friends or family. One day, everyone just realized what was going on, and they were there for it. Just like Becky's family, Nicole's family was also completely supportive of their relationship. Even though same-sex marriage wasn't legal in Illinois until 2014, which is insane, everyone viewed the couple as married. By all accounts, Becky and Nicole were strong, a power couple, if you will. Becky's sister only recalled one disagreement between the two. According to court documents, in March of 2002, Becky decided she wanted to end things with Nicole, and when Nicole found out about their imminent breakup, she threatened to drink herself to death if Becky left. As a result of that threat, Becky decided to stay. 
It was a massive red flag, but it was a standalone and not a field of them. So in time, as the years passed, it was just kind of let go. According to Becky's mother, there were never any major arguments between the two. A friend of Becky and Nicole's told the Chicago Tribune, they were both very nice girls. I've never seen Becky and Nicole argue. In May of 2006, Becky and Nicole took their relationship to the next level and bought a house together in Villa Park, Illinois. Villa Park is 20 miles east of Chicago, and it is a sea of manicured lawns and backyard pools. It's the dream location if you're trying to raise a family. I mean, Halloween would be insane, and I'd be willing to bet that the Christmas decoration situation would be on another level. From the outside looking in, Becky and Nicole looked like they were thriving. A rep from the state attorney's office said they were the typical couple in any suburban home. Neighbors described Becky and Nicole as being friendly, but also noted that the two were polar opposites. Becky was social and extroverted, while Nicole tended to keep to herself. They were the yin to each other's yang and seemed to balance each other out perfectly. On March 15, 2007, Becky's sister Melanie came to the house to decorate for Melanie's son's birthday party. They were going to be having it in the garage at Becky and Nicole's house the following weekend, and the garage needed some work like I think most of ours probably do. Throughout the day, Becky and Melanie cleaned up and hung up decorations, and Nicole was at the house, but she didn't really help. According to court documents, she was chilling on the couch due to a back injury because she had apparently slipped on some ice a few months prior and had hurt her back. It was actually so bad that Nicole couldn't work anymore because she just couldn't physically keep up with the job. After the decorating commenced, the three of them had dinner and around 7 p.m., Melanie headed home. Becky told her not to worry about finishing what was going on in the garage, that she would take care of the rest. For reasons unknown, Melanie tried to call Becky about an hour later, but Becky didn't answer. It didn't seem like a big deal because Becky was probably just out in the garage finishing up their work. The next morning, March 16th, Melanie still hadn't heard from Becky, which was pretty weird. Normally, the two sisters would talk on the phone while they drove to work, but Melanie wasn't too worried and figured she'd probably hear from her sister soon. Later that same morning, other people started to notice Becky's absence, namely her boss. He was concerned because Becky was the queen of her job and she hadn't showed up. According to court records, Becky's boss called her home phone to check on her and Nicole answered. He asked her where Becky was and Nicole was clueless, saying that Becky had left for work hours ago. When John said he'd called Becky's cell phone but didn't get an answer, Nicole explained to him that Becky had been having trouble with her cell phone recently, but John thought that was pretty weird because he had talked to Becky on her cell phone a lot over the past few days, and at no point in time did she ever complain about having any issues with it. After getting off the phone with Becky's boss, Nicole reached out to Becky's mom to see if she had heard from her. She hadn't, but wanted to check with her husband, Roger, before raising any alarms. Becky's mom reached out to the rest of the family, fully expecting for at least one of them to have heard from Becky that morning, but not a single one of them had. Nicole started driving around Villa Park looking for Becky's vehicle, which was a white van that she used to transport elderly adults for her daycare program. Within an hour, Nicole found it parked on a side street around the corner from their house. The doors were unlocked, the keys were in the ignition, and the contents of Becky's backpack were spilled across the seat. It was at that point that Nicole called the police. 
In the 911 call, you can hear her say, Hi, my best friend's been missing all day. She hasn't gone into work or anything, but then I just found her van. Nicole told the operator that Becky wasn't in the van and she wasn't at the house. Within the hour, police responded to Becky and Nicole's house, which was where everyone who loved Becky was congregating. Nicole was upset and crying and met them outside. The authorities asked her what happened and Nicole explained that Becky was missing. At that point, the investigators tried to narrow down the timeline of events. They asked Nicole what she and Becky had done the night before, and Nicole explained that they'd moseyed around the house a little before settling on the couch to watch TV. At around 10.30 p.m., the couple went to bed, but not together. Nicole slept on the couch because her back was injured and Becky slept in their bedroom. In the morning, Becky left the house around 6.30 a.m. like normal, but before walking out the door, kissed Nicole goodbye and Nicole went back to sleep. She slept like Rip Van Winkle until around 11.30 a.m. when she got the phone call from Becky's boss. At that point, officers knew that something was up. They just didn't know exactly what it was. Becky wasn't the type to run off, and it didn't seem like there was anyone who would have had any motive to take her. They didn't suspect Nicole because at first glance, investigators hadn't noticed anything suspicious in Becky's house. Plus, Nicole had assured officers that she and Becky were a happy couple. She specifically told investigators there was absolutely no infidelity, which seems like a really specific statement to make and one that I now don't believe since she made a point to say it. A sergeant from the Villa Park Police Department said there could have been a million scenarios. Was Becky being robbed? Was she being carjacked? But if you're being carjacked, why is the car still there? If you're being robbed, why are her personal belongings still in the car? I mean, none of it made sense to me. Police, family, and friends stayed at Becky's house, and it seemed like every single person who knew Becky was stopping by checking on Nicole's well-being. They were asking what they could do to help, and one detective said, I'd been doing this for 30 years. This was the first time I saw such an outpouring for a missing adult. While everyone was at the house, Becky's sister Melanie was looking around for anything she could find that might give them a clue as to where her sister was. And she found it on a ledge of the window in the basement of all places. Much like Shanann Watts' best friend, Melanie panicked because her sister wouldn't have gone anywhere without her phone. This piqued detectives' interest, and they started to wonder if there was anything else suspicious in the house. They asked if they could look around the house and garage, and Nicole told them to go ahead. They didn't find anything weird in the house, but in the garage, they did. There was trash, totes, and junk all over the place, which meant that Becky hadn't finished cleaning up, which seemed to have been her only solid plan for the rest of the night after her sister had left. A detective also noticed that Nicole's prized Mustang, which she had gotten as a fixer-upper, was covered in a layer of dust except for one spot on the lid of the trunk. According to court documents, Nicole told officers that she didn't have the keys to the trunk, that when she'd bought the car, she'd only been given the keys to the ignition, which were different from the keys to the trunk. It seems suspicious AF that there'd be no evidence of anyone even touching the Mustang in a hot minute aside from one place Nicole didn't have a key for, so needless to say, the hinky meters were going off.
the side eye firmly in place, detectives went to speak with Becky and Nicole's neighbors, who told them that a black vehicle had been parked in their driveway overnight. When Nicole was presented with that information, she suddenly remembered a story that she never thought to tell police. Apparently, the black vehicle belonged to Nicole's friend, Rose Sidaro. According to Nicole, Rose had gotten pretty toasted the evening before, and instead of driving home drunk, Rose dropped her car off at Nicole's house in the middle of the night and had a friend come and pick her up. When asked why Nicole didn't disclose any of this information earlier, she claimed it was because she didn't want to get Rose in trouble for underage drinking, since she was only 19 years old. Detectives asked Nicole for Rose's address and phone number, but Nicole said she didn't have either. Rose seemed to know Nicole's address well enough when she was drunk, but Nicole didn't so much as have a means of contacting her. Strike number two against the things that I believe coming out of Nicole's mouth. With no sign of Becky anywhere, officers and family members started trying to get the word out about her disappearance. Becky's family published a blog with Becky's picture, handed out missing persons flyers, and contacted news stations. Nicole reached out to her own friends and family so they could help look for Becky too. By that evening, the crowd at Becky and Nicole's house was bigger than ever. Police wanted to use Nicole's laptop for some reason, but they couldn't get the internet to work. They tried to reset the wireless connection, but it didn't help, because remember this was 2007, so Wi-Fi was a pain in the ass. You'd have to unplug it, wait 30 seconds, replug it, rinse and repeat until you lose your mind. After some back and forth, they realized that someone had unplugged the actual router. It was never confirmed who, since so many people were in the house at the time, but it felt a whole lot like someone didn't want anyone using their computer. March 17th marked 24 hours since Becky had gone missing. A detective reached out to Nicole because he wanted to do a more thorough and systematic search of the house, but this time, Nicole refused. The detective was a little surprised since Nicole had agreed to the same search just the day before, but after some discussion, Nicole came around and agreed to the search, and thus it began. When it came time to try and get into the trunk of Nicole's Mustang, Nicole reiterated the story about not having the keys to the trunk. Unfortunately for her, one of the investigators dropped some Mustang knowledge and said that if you went into the Mustang's back seat and removed a speaker, you could see directly into the trunk. According to court documents, that's exactly what they did, and once they were able to peer inside of it, they saw it. In the trunk of the Mustang was Becky Klein's body, and it was painfully clear that she had been murdered. Keeping their composure, police went back inside the house, and without telling Nicole about finding Becky's body, they asked her again for the keys to the Mustang's trunk. Again, Nicole told them that she'd never had them, and in an effort to prove that she was a big fat liar, police searched the house one final time, and lo and behold, they found the keys that Nicole said didn't exist. That would be strike three in the list of lies. Having found the keys, authorities opened the Mustang's trunk and were able to visually confirm that the body in the trunk was in fact Becky's. She was lying on her side in the fetal position with both her hands and feet bound with duct tape. A plastic garbage bag had been placed over her head, which was secured with so much duct tape that no air would have been able to come through. When investigators removed the plastic bag, they found two bandanas, one tied around Becky's eyes and the other tied around her mouth. When the police informed Nicole that they'd found Becky's body in her trunk, she was devastated. 
a devastation that police were not buying. So they took Nicole down to the station for questioning. In a video of her interview, Nicole seems to have located her composure and she speaks clearly and seems pretty calm. Nicole repeats her previous story that she and Becky went to bed. Nicole's friend Rose stopped by after getting drunk. Nicole slept on the couch. Becky kissed her goodbye. And then Becky was gone without a trace. When investigators asked Nicole how someone could have put a body in her Mustang's trunk without her noticing, Nicole recalled that she had left the house for a few hours, that she'd run some errands after Becky went to work. A stark contrast to the couch-ridden Nicole who couldn't get up to help decorate the garage and the Rip Van Winkle Nicole who said she had slept until 11.30 a.m. until Becky's boss had called her. Detectives continued to press Nicole about the details, but she maintained her innocence and ultimately the police didn't have enough to charge her, so she was released. Nicole wasn't the only one police had brought in for questioning, though. Investigators tracked down 19-year-old Rose Sodaro, the one who had apparently gotten drunk and left her car in Becky and Nicole's driveway. At first, Rose told the exact same story that Nicole told officers, but when police told Rose they'd found Becky's body in the trunk of Nicole's Mustang, Rose changed her tune and told detectives everything. Apparently, after Nicole and Becky had bought their house in the Burbs, Nicole started to slowly withdraw from their relationship. She spent less time with Becky and more time working on that Mustang and staying up until the wee hours of the morning on the internet. A friend of the couple told LMN that around that time, they didn't display that open affection. If you were to see them in a social setting, you couldn't decipher that they were a couple. Some of Nicole's friends told Snapped that Nicole was bored of her traditional relationship with Becky. And while Nicole was being more and more distant, Becky didn't catch on. Actually, Becky started talking to Nicole about possibly adopting children, but it fell on deaf ears because apparently Nicole had already emotionally checked out of the relationship. During her emotional hiatus in March of 2006, 25-year-old Nicole met 19-year-old Rose on MySpace of all places. A rep from the state attorney's office said Rose's MySpace profile stated that she was bisexual and interested in Mustangs, both of which caught Nicole's attention. The two started texting, which turned into talking on the phone. Before long, they met in person, and eventually it evolved into a sexual relationship. In June, Rose went to Nicole's house for the first time, where Nicole led her to believe that Becky was her roommate, not her wife. Rose actually slept over at Nicole and Becky's house on multiple occasions, but always when Becky was away. Throughout Nicole and Rose's affair, Nicole lied to Rose constantly, and I'm talking bold-faced, batshit crazy, cuckoo bananas kind of lies. She told Rose that her broke-ass back-having self was a firefighter in Villa Park and that before that, she had been a firefighter in New York City. Nicole said that she was called to the scene of 9-11 and knew several of the firefighters who passed away that day. According to a rep from the state attorney's office, Nicole also told Rose that she'd earned numerous awards for her heroics in firefighting. Nicole even paid an online service to create fake news articles for her so that she could show Rose proof of her firefighting badassery. Imaginary firefighting badassery. When Nicole needed to spend time with Becky, she would tell Rose she was at a firefighter training or working at the firehouse. I guess this wasn't a come bring me lunch at the firehouse situation. 
Jackson. On top of all of Nicole's imaginary firefighting adventures, she told Rose that her brother Danny was dying from Wilson's disease and that he was the one who had bought her the house so that she could take care of him in his final days. Nicole did have a brother, his name was not Danny, and he was not dying from Wilson's disease. And Danny was just half of the people Nicole claimed were dying of a tragic illness. The other half was herself. Nicole told Rose that she was dying from liver cancer. She said that at one point she was going to get a liver transplant, but it fell through. When Rose asked which hospital Nicole was working with, she skirted around the question, but did make sure to tell Rose that if she died, she wanted her casket to have a firefighter's emblem on it. According to that rep from the state attorney's office, one of Nicole's first dates with Rose was actually to pick out a casket, tombstone, and gravesite in preparation for her death from her imaginary liver cancer. Rose wasn't subscribing to all of Nicole's stories, though, because she drank a whole lot for someone claiming to be waiting on a liver transplant. But in the same breath, Rose was young, and Nicole made her feel special and loved with promises of buying a house and spending the rest of their lives together. While Nicole was lying her ass off about her entire existence, she did set aside time for some hobbies, which included making fake MySpace accounts and using them to message herself and Rose to make it look like she had all of these people sliding into her DMs wanting to sweep her off her feet, which would make her look like a hero, you know, since she'd always choose Rose over the people in her DMs, the fake people in her DMs, the herself in her DMs. Rose almost dodged the proverbial bullet that was Nicole in the summer of 2006, almost a year before Becky's death. Rose squashed their relationship because her mom didn't approve of Nicole because mothers can smell bullshit from a mile away. Unfortunately, by the fall of 2006, they were talking again, and fast forward a few months to March of 2007, Nicole was asking Rose to lie to the police on her behalf, but Rose took matters into her own hands. She told police that on March 15th, the night Becky was killed, she'd invited Nicole to go bowling with her and some of her friends. Bowling is a back-intensive sport, so it's a freaking Christmas miracle that Nicole said she'd go, though she said she couldn't get there until after 7.30 p.m., because she said she was finishing up a shift at the Villa Park Firehouse. Around 9.20 p.m., Nicole and Rose met at a restaurant and then headed to the bowling alley. Rose drove and they left Nicole's car in the restaurant parking lot. At the bowling alley, Nicole drank like a fish that was definitely not waiting on a liver transplant. By the time everyone was ready to leave, Nicole was wasted, so instead of picking up her car at the restaurant, Rose just drove them back to Becky and Nicole's house. They got there around 3 a.m., and Rose parked in the driveway next to the front door because Becky's white van was blocking the driveway in the garage. Rose didn't know the van was Becky's, since Becky had always been gone when Rose came over, so when she walked in the house, it didn't seem strange that Becky wasn't there. When Nicole grabbed some clothes for Rose to sleep in, Rose noticed a gun in an open case on the bed, and it freaked her out a little because, you know, it's a gun on the bed. So she asked why it was there, and Nicole told her not to worry about it and just put the gun in her nightstand. 
Later that night, Nicole told Rose that she had a kick-ass present for her. Nicole reached into her pocket and pulled out a key to the Mustang. She told Rose that she could take the Mustang out whenever she wanted. It seems more like a lame-ass present and that she might have been looking for a way to place Rose in the car that had Becky's body in it, but what do I know? The next morning, March 16th, Nicole woke up around 7 or 8 a.m. When Rose woke up, the two watched some TV, and 20 or so minutes later, Rose saw Nicole getting calls that seemed to upset her. Eventually, Nicole told Rose that her roommate Becky was missing, and the calls that she'd received were from Becky's boss and dad. At noon, Nicole drove Rose to the restaurant to pick up Nicole's car, and Rose dropped her off and went home. They were supposed to meet up later in the day to go to a funeral together, but Nicole called and said she would be late. Not that she wouldn't be there, just that she would be there later. Nicole asked Rose to wait for her because she still wanted to go, but Nicole never did show up. As Rose drove home from the funeral, Nicole called her. She told Rose that if she was pulled over by police, she had to deny knowing Nicole and having a MySpace account. But honey, the internet is forever. She also told Rose that if she was questioned by police, she should say she was out drinking with a friend on the night of March 15th and that she left her car at Nicole's house because she couldn't drive home. Nicole sold it like she was trying to do her a solid so they wouldn't think Rose was involved in Becky's disappearance. At first, investigators wondered if Rose was lying to them about her alibi, but they were able to confirm that Rose had been at the restaurant around 9 p.m. and at the bowling alley until past midnight. Essentially, she was cleared and with no help of Nicole's cockamamie stories. While Rose was speaking with investigators, police were simultaneously searching every single nook and cranny of Nicole and Becky's home, and it was there that they found those keys we talked about, along with evidence that Nicole was abusing and selling illegal drugs. The same night Becky was killed, a man named Robert, Nicole's former supervisor, had also stopped by Nicole and Becky's home. According to the Chicago Daily Herald, Robert said he was in the area that evening, but just because he was getting a haircut. He said he hadn't even spoken to Nicole in three weeks, but when police told him that his car had been seen in Becky and Nicole's driveway on March 15th and that their phone records showed Robert and Nicole had called each other more than 50 times, Robert changed his tune. He admitted that he and Nicole were drug buddies who shared wild sex fantasies, that that particular evening, he had gone to Nicole's house to buy drugs. When investigators asked Robert about Becky, he got evasive, saying he was too drunk to remember what happened and asked for an attorney. Robert never revealed what he saw that night and was later arrested and charged with a felony count of obstructing justice and was sentenced to 75 days in a work release program and 30 months of probation. Back at Nicole's house, police found a roll of duct tape in the garage. The roll was purchased at a Walgreens nearby on the exact same evening Becky was murdered. A sergeant with the Villa Park Police Department said the key to the case was the duct tape. The ripped end of the duct tape on the roll matched one of the strips of the tape on Becky's body exactly. It was a straight CSI moment and law enforcement was now certain that Nicole was the murderer, but they needed more evidence. If they were going to take her to trial, they were going to have all the ducks in all the rows. When Becky's autopsy came back, it was confirmed that she had in fact died of suffocation on the night of March 15th, which proved Nicole was lying about seeing Becky leave for work the next morning. Plus, those prints in the dust on the Mustang matched Nicole's left hand. 
Another palm print and numerous fingerprints were taken from the plastic bag around Becky's head, all of which match Nicole. They also found her prints on the duct tape on Becky's body and the roll found in the garage. To top it off, Nicole's DNA was found on the bandanas wrapped around Becky's mouth and eyes. According to LMN, police also realized why Nicole had left Becky's body in the trunk without trying to actually move the vehicle out of the garage. Turns out Karma and Petty formed a super team and Nicole's prized piece of junk could not drive in reverse. On March 21st, Nicole was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Some of Nicole's family and friends were shocked because they couldn't believe Nicole was guilty. They pointed their fingers towards Robert, Nicole's former supervisor, who had stopped by to buy drugs the night Becky was killed. Nicole's family and friends believed that Robert was snooping around for drugs in the garage and that Becky had walked in on him and he killed her out of a panic. But their theory was backed by absolutely zero evidence. Neither Robert's DNA nor his fingerprints were found anywhere near Becky's body. Also, Becky's autopsy determined that there were no outward signs of injury, which means that there were no defensive wounds and Becky hadn't struggled at all. Based on the fact that Becky had no bruises, scrapes, or scratches, investigators deduced that she probably got into the trunk willingly. While some of Nicole's family and friends were shocked, the investigators felt like some of Nicole's family might know the truth. Nicole was interviewed at the police station three times, and each time she maintained her innocence. Nicole repeatedly stated, I didn't do anything to her. I didn't put her in the trunk. Are you kidding me? There's no way she would kick my ass. Are you kidding? No. During her final interview with police, Nicole's father was present. You can see him in the video of the interview, and he's pacing behind Nicole, who's sitting while officers question her. And when officers ask Nicole if she knows that fingerprints can be pulled from duct tape, Nicole's father stopped the interview. A sergeant from the Villa Park Police Department said he could see Nicole's father realizing that his daughter was the killer. He told Elliman he wraps his arm around her and he says, that's it, because he knew. Nicole's bail was set at $1 million. According to the Chicago Tribune, Nicole appeared teary-eyed and shaken while her attorney told the public that she maintained her absolute innocence, adding, Nicole wants to get out of jail and find out who did this to her partner of seven years and especially attend Becky's funeral. Audacity was apparently on clearance that day. Nicole's family fundraised the 10% of the bail required for Nicole to get out of jail, which is $100,000. She was put on house arrest at her dad's house, but violated her bail several times. People saw her outside and going to her neighbor's house frequently. It's no surprise that just days later, this money pit of Nicole was arrested for a bail violation. The prosecution requested that Nicole's bail be revoked, but the judge denied the request and instead raised the bail slightly. Just like they did before, Nicole's family fundraised the money and Nicole remained out of jail until her trial. Nicole's family and friends also allegedly took Becky's personal items from their home. According to the Chicago Tribune, a group of people who are assumed to be Nicole's family and friends moved everything out of Nicole and Becky's house. They took Becky's clothes, shoes, purses, a family hope chest, a family quilt, antiques, furniture, and more. Thankfully, Becky's family had already removed her valuable jewelry, but they were still devastated by the loss of their recently deceased loved one's items. They contacted Nicole's family and attorneys to get them back, but they didn't get a response. 
response. While Becky's family was trying to get her belongings back, Nicole's attorney was busy telling reporters that it was physically impossible for Nicole to have committed the murder. They said Nicole is 5 foot 2 inches, about 115 pounds, with a back that prohibits her from lifting more than 20 to 30 pounds, a small child. Nicole could have never carried Becky to the car and lifted her. Considering Nicole's love for bowling, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that her back injury wasn't all it was cracked up to be, and Becky was only two inches taller and 25 pounds heavier. But that didn't really matter because the prosecution didn't even believe that Nicole ever had to lift her in the first place. During Nicole's trial in April of 2009, prosecutors argued that Nicole used her gun to force Becky to gag her own mouth, go out to the Mustang in the garage, get in the trunk, and allow her hands and feet to be bound. It was after Becky was completely incapacitated that they believed Nicole placed a plastic bag over Becky's head, taping it in place before shutting the trunk and leaving Becky to die of suffocation. As for motive, prosecutors believe Nicole wanted Becky's insurance money and to pursue her love with Rose. When the prosecution cross-examined Nicole, she admitted that she had profited from eight previous insurance claims ranging from car accidents to workers' comp. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Nicole's defense team denied everything. They said Nicole did not kill Becky because there was no reason to. They claimed that Nicole and Becky were in an open relationship, so Becky knew Nicole was seeing Rose. A pretty weak defense since Rose herself didn't seem to know about Becky. Nicole testified that she loved Becky, saying she was everything. I can't remember a time when I didn't love her. She claimed that her fingerprints were found in incriminating locations because she lived with Becky, so of course she touched everything in the home. She said she'd been using duct tape to help Becky and Melanie decorate for the birthday party, tearing strips off for them, that her back had hurt too much to do anything else. Nicole said that she had lied to police because she was scared and trying to protect Becky's honor. Because, you know, she's a real hero at this point. Nicole claimed that she didn't want everyone to know that Becky and her were in an open relationship because it wasn't anyone's business. On May 5th of 2009, after 13 hours of deliberation, the jury found 29-year-old Nicole Abusharif guilty of first-degree murder. The jury foreman told the Chicago Tribune the physical evidence was overwhelming. 
However, the jury didn't think the murder was premeditated, which meant Nicole wouldn't be facing a life sentence. She was ultimately sentenced to 50 years in prison and will have to serve 100% of her sentence before she's released at 79 years old. To date, all of Nicole's appeals have been denied. Following the sentence, officers discuss Becky's case saying, if someone is going to secure somebody, duct tape them, suffocate them, I mean, several minutes go by. It's quite a process. There's no remorse. Becky's family told the Chicago Tribune that they'd spent the last two years trying to figure out why Nicole killed Becky or how she was able to dupe and mislead them all into trusting her. A rep from the state attorney's office said, Becky was a person who everybody loved and her death literally destroyed that family. They have never recovered and they never will recover from the hole that was created by Nicole Abusharif. For all photos pertaining to Becky's case, check out her highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me there tonight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media. All cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 